In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. And some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Alshpanez, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them to a daily portion of food that the king ate, and of the wine he, that he drank. They were to, to be educated for three years. At the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Ananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Meshel he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But David resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who were of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days it was seen that they were in better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Please pray with me. God, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to better learn of the actions of Daniel and these three other young Judean men in the courts of exile. I pray that your word will be exposited faithfully today and that we will better see Christ and better know how to live in our own world of exile and that you might be glorified in all that is done today. To you be all glory. Amen. So far in the book of Daniel, we've seen that Daniel has two parts. Uh, we've seen that part one is Hebrew for chapter one of Daniel. So Daniel chapter one is a 
Hebrew prologue into a part one of Daniel, that is the rest of which is in Aramaic. And then part two of Daniel has chapter seven, which is a uh, Aramaic prologue or introduction into the remaining Hebrew um, second part of Daniel. So we're still in that prologue for Daniel in Daniel chapter one. We're still in Hebrew right now. And uh, we've talked about uh, various men so far, but it all started with the exile from Judah into Babylon. This was the result of, of the Lord giving the people of Judah into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. We saw that. And then within that, we saw they specifically took as slaves a subset of people from the tribe of Judah, from the kingdom of Judah, young men that were to be taken to Babylon and to be treated in an academy and to be trained and developed over a course of years, a course of three years, for the Babylonian service. Of all these young men taken, we're told specifically of four, um, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, I will tell you, for the sake of convenience, I will probably refer to them as the four pretty frequently here. Otherwise, it it can get a mouthful um, in terms of the frequency of use of their names. But these four were blessed. We saw last time that they were especially blessed by God, that they sought God first. And with that blessing, God gave them wisdom and understanding. This is not just academic passing a quiz on chemistry understanding. This is the wisdom and understanding of the Lord. And with that wisdom and understanding, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah use that for the benefit of the kingdom of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar recognizes the benefit that is seen at the end of chapter 1, um, talking about how they, the outcomes of their decisions were ten times greater than those of the other wisest men of their court. And I referenced in the kind of character profile of these four men, I, I intentionally skipped the section that we're doing today, which is verses 8 through 16. But in this section, I referenced that we were going to see the character of these four men. And I think we will see it very clearly, as well as the character of those who are around them. Uh, for the main theme of Daniel, I'm going to reiterate for us that it is uh, the kings of the earth— our suffering, our salvation, and all of history bow down to the authority of God. Sovereignty is at play and the focus in almost every word choice, in every verse, there is some way pointing towards the sovereignty of God, which if you think about is what is perhaps most needed to continue to dwell on when you're in exile, is God is in control. And we will see the consequences of losing sight of that, as well as the consequences of keeping your eyes on that, here today. In our passage specifically, you can imagine uh, these young men, all of them, not just the four, but all of them are facing pressure. Pressure to assimilate. Pressure to become civilized. Um, it's not, shouldn't be a surprise. This is what conquering nations do. You have options to make people a vassal state. This is what was done with uh, Judah when Egypt had conquered. Um, when conquered Judah, they made them a vassal state. So they still operated their own government. They stayed in their own civilization and culture, but now they're playing tribute to the king, right? They're paying tribute to Egypt. But here, after the battle of Carchemish and and Babylon beating Egypt and now wanting ownership of, of Judah and then conquering, they instead decide to export young men into their academies. And so this civilization process is happening. 
Perhaps that assimilation or, assim- or civilizing pressure is probably best recognized by us Americans in our own history with Native Americans, right? Um, George Washington himself said that the best way to have peace with Native Americans was to civilize them. So what comes with civilizing a people or getting them to adopt your culture and forego their culture? You have appearance change, names changed, language changed, diet changed, education changed, and religious ceremonies changed. These things are changed to the culture and enforced on the culture that you want them to adopt. You're trying to get assimilation. And so we're going to see this pressure is all over these young men of Judea. And um, I want you to think for yourself, as I list those options again, if you are the young men in Judea, where and when do you draw the line? Is there a line to be drawn in all these pressures and things being put on you to assimilate? Where do you draw the line? So we would expect that their appearance is being changed. We're directly told their names were changed. Their names are emblematic of the polytheistic culture of Babylon, just as we might have a number of Marks, Peters, Johns here in our own church. You see that the focus on the religion of Babylon is in these names. We have uh, diet changed. We clearly see that as the focus for our conversation today. But then also language has changed. They're now learning multiple languages, learning Akkadian um, and speaking that as well as Aramaic. And then addition to that, you have education change. We were just, we were told specifically they're moved into this Babylonian academy and their approach to education. And then religious ceremonies are changed. They're not in the promised land anymore. They do not have their temples of worship. It's all changed. So again, where do you draw the line? The young men are probably going through a thought process like this. We're far away from home. Everyone else are doing all these changes. Everyone else in the academy are dressing like this, being named to these things, eating like this. It could be offensive, perceived as offensive if I don't participate. Do I even have the choice to not participate? I'm a slave. Can I not do these things that are being pushed on me? We're finally making advancement in the king's court. Do I really want to mess that up by rocking the boat and not becoming a true Babylonian? We could lose our lives for taking a stand on one of these items. God has abandoned us. We're not in the promised land. God left us. Where was he to defend us in our promised land? Now, on its surface, it's very easy to see how this thinking is flawed. We have the benefit of scripture and um, perspective, and they had the benefit of the prophets, letting them know directly why there would be exile. There'd be exile for violence done on innocence in the form of King Manasseh, and also there was going to be um, uh, a recompense for the idolatry of the nation. They had put another god before Yahweh. But still, the tremendous pressure these young Judean men are under, they still have to pick and choose where to draw the line. So let's see first who draws a line, and then second, if they draw a line, where? So if we look in Daniel chapter 1 verse 8, we see right away, well, Daniel draws a line, and Daniel draws a line at food. So look at Daniel 1 8 with me. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. 
The word resolved there, we'll get into it more in a bit, but the word resolved more woodenly translated or literally translated is to set his heart upon. So the heart is its own study, its own study. Um, but I believe it's valuable for us, and you're going to hear me refer to setting your heart upon something far more often than you will hear me use the word resolved. And that's what's going on there, is that Daniel is setting his heart upon, setting his heart upon, or setting his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's food and the wine he drank. But beyond that, it's not just Daniel. We actually have all three. So Daniel's being a spokesman here for the additional three. So the four as a whole. If you look down at verse 11... We see Daniel talking to the steward. Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants 10 days. So we see that this test, the the drawing the line, the resolution, the setting of their heart is by all four of these young men. And where they draw the line is food. We'll get into why that in a moment. But what's maybe not explicit here, but is implicit, it's implied here, is that the other Judean youths are not drawing a line. In fact, I would argue that they are fully assimilating. They're accepting everything their captors have to give them. And and we'll look at that in greater detail, and we'll see why, why that's clear. But if you look with me, you can see in verse 11 and 12, again, where it said, um, Uh, excuse me, in verse 10, right before there, we see, and the chief of the eunuchs, uh, chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? The fact that these four are taking a stand and have a comparison point points to the four they're being, the others they're being compared to are not eating of this diet with these four. Now, I will note, I referenced the Battle of Carchemish, Babylon is at its strength right now. There could be men from many nations in here, but we're specifically told about four and four that were blessed with wisdom. I think, I think it is fair to see, and pretty much all commentators would agree that it's fair to see, that it is just these four taking a stand and the other Judean youths among potentially other nationalities are being seen. Additionally, evidence to this or what might support that would be the idea that if Babylon is looking at the appearance of you compared to someone else, they're probably looking at people who look like you, sound like you, and talk like you. And so the comparison here is being done to other Judeans. So we see Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah draw a line at food, but the Judean youths, I argue, fully assimilate. So then the question becomes, why food? Why food? Out of all these things, I referenced the names are, thing, are, are in reference to pantheon of gods. There's direct names you can go in and look at. Um, Daniel actually does something kind of cool in which he um, kind of tries to undermine that in that he changes one letter in the names of these that doesn't give direct reference to these false deities. But still, someone, every time they call your name, every time the uh, Ashpenaz, right, calls your name, he is using a name that is in some way referring to an idol. And yet that's not where the line drawn, it's drawn at food. And specifically within food, we see the word vegetables, like not just all food, vegetables. Now I will note when we see vegetables, it means food that's sown. So vegetarian diet might be a good way to think about it. Fruits, absolutely. Grains, beans, seeds, everything that comes from grains you could do. So bread, things like that. Essentially 
the way we narrow this down is to say they are abstaining from meat from the king's table and wine in this situation. So why, why vegetables? And even then, if Daniel says he won't defile himself with the king's food, don't the vegetables come from the king as well? So then how, how is something special about this particular food? And we're going to spend quite a bit of time here talking about why this food is defilement, why the meat and wine is defilement, because it sets in motion all the following actions that result from understanding the defilement that's happening. So, uh, one of the most common thoughts as to why it might be is perhaps it's food offered to idols. And the answer is yes, the food is offered to idols. And, and that likely comes to mind because of 1 Corinthians 8. In 1 Corinthians 8, we have the passage where um, talking about not having a, helping a brother not to stumble, and it references eating food offered to idols. But as one commentator put it, that would be to import a New Testament issue into the Old Testament. We actually don't see in the Old Testament specific references to sin in and of itself for food offered to idols, consumption of food offered to idols. Now, to be clear, if someone is worshiping a deity by consuming that food, absolutely. Now you're starting to violate commandments. But the food offered to idols in and of itself is not sinful for consumption. So that's not it. And even then, beyond that, I think we see that that case is not the reason they're drawing the line there. It's because they're going to eat the vegetables. These grain, their grain offerings, we have from, from um, archaeology, we have lists of what was offered to bat in Babylon for, for um, sacrifices for idols. And in that list, vegetables, grains, fruits, all of it. So they are still consuming something that is offered to it, offered to idols. And, and I think even more simply, we can think of Cain and Abel, right? Cain, perhaps his, his offering was not as good as Abel's, but Cain is still providing an offering that is a grain offering. And similarly, this is being done here. So vegetables that doesn't, food offered to idols doesn't really explain this. So then is, is the meat and wine, are the meat and wine defilement because the, um, uh, because the four have a conviction around health, right? So if you're hoping for a vegetarian diet, or maybe more likely you're afraid the, the result of this is we should all be vegetarian, the answer to that is clearly no. It's, it's not a health-related thing. Um, and we'll see this um, specifically here. Actually, if you turn with me to Daniel chapter 10, we're going to look at... Daniel chapter 10, verse 3. So Daniel, in this time of mourning, uh, Daniel 10, 3 says, I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. So in a time of mourning, he stops eating meat and drinking wine the very thing he's refusing. So it is not in and of itself the meat and wine that Daniel is refusing this and the other three are refusing this. And then beyond that, I'd point out to certain ceremonies like the Passover. Uh, there are specific commandments to eat meat in a specific way. Beyond that, we have in, the, um, in Deuteronomy 15, the firstborn of all, f- of all of the flock are to be eaten. And then for the, on the wine side, the prohibitions against wine are not the wine in and of itself, but there's guidance around drinking too much wine and being drunk. But the wine in and of itself, again, is not sinful. The Lord's table is set with wine. 
Jesus made wine from water. So again, the meat and wine inherently, just like the vegetables being offered or the food being offered to idols inherently isn't the issue here, isn't the defilement they're trying to avoid. Beyond that, we can actually make the argument all the food is unclean. In fact, scripture makes that argument. Uh, I will turn to Ezekiel, the book right before Daniel, and I'm going to turn to chapter 4, verse 13. Ezekiel 4, 13. And Yahweh said, Thus shall the people of Israel eat their bread unclean among the nations where I will drive them. So, okay, we see uncleanness there. Well, then on the other side of Daniel, so leapfrog Daniel, let's turn to Hosea chapter 9, verses 3 and 4. They shall not remain in the land of Yahweh, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to Yahweh, and their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like mourner's bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of Yahweh. So what we see here is the, the food is, and we specifically have bread listed here, the food, because it's not coming to the house of Yahweh, it is being eaten in a way in which it is not a sacrifice to God, is in and of itself a mourner, uh, it shall be like mourner's bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled. So there's an extent to which the, all the food, by the nature of them not being in the promised land, maintaining food to the standards of the Mosaic law, it is going to be defiled. It is not in the, consumed in the appropriate form of worship and identity of God. So then why discriminate? Why, if we're back in our, our Daniel past, why, why is, are the four discriminating against certain types of food? Well, I'll argue there are two reasons. There's a lesser reason that points to a greater reason. The first is I've referenced that we do have the law of Moses. There are restrictions around food, and we're told about some specific dietary restrictions. So one um, specifically around meat, we see dietary restrictions where um, the death, form of death of an animal matters in its preparation. An animal that dies on its own um, is, is an issue. So an animal that is diseased or anything like that or dies of old age, if that is prepared, that, that is to be unclean. But uh, so essentially any food that is not like intentionally slaughtered for the meal is, is an issue. Then we have types of animals. Uh, we've seen through archaeology, horse meat is actually really common right now in Babylon at this time. And that's an unacceptable form of food. And then pork, that's an unacceptable form of food, is also very popular. Um, and then additionally, we have blood. Uh, in, in Leviticus 17.10, we're told that we are not to have any blood in food, and specific, so they would drain the blood before they cooked the meat. But specifically, God said he would set his face against anyone who consumed blood. Now, the reason I say this is a lesser reason is... is um, is that if you think about this for a moment, it's not including the wine. So we're still missing the wine. Beyond that, what about cross-contamination? In, in the promised land where you have priests, Levitical priests, a 
acting in a way in which they follow the methods of food preparation, you can have confidence in what you eat. But anyone who's worked in fast food or you know, a kitchen at some point, I'm sure, has had to have a training on cross-contamination. And in, in this idea, the people in Babylonian court who are preparing the vegetables, there's no guarantee that they would not also be preparing things that would have caused them, like the meat, that might cause them to have blood. Or that, and that might not be on the vegetables as well. So it is not in and of itself clearly the reason here, because again, we're also missing the wine. Like, why the wine? And um, uh, I think the reason this is a lesser reason and why I don't dismiss it is because I think, I think this is pointing to our greater reason. And I think the lesser reason, if I were to sum it up, it's almost as if someone were to, you know, some high schoolers win a science fair competition. They get to go.